0: Welcome to Four Star Forum, an exclusive one-on-one series of conversations with the men and women who have ascended to the highest rank possible today in the United States military. Every week you'll meet a four-star that will take on the most complex military, national security, and geopolitical issues America faces. This is Episode 9 of Four Star Forum. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Politicizing the military is one of the most controversial issues in the national security community right now. Because of that, I've encountered a number of military leaders of all backgrounds and all services who are reluctant to share their views on national security and geopolitical issues for a lot of different reasons. My guest today is definitely not in that camp. Admiral James Stavridis, U.S. Navy retired, is former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. He's an operating executive of the Carlyle Group and chair of the Board of Counselors of McClarty Associates. He's a columnist for Time Magazine and he's chief international security analyst for NBC News. His new book is 2034, a novel of the next world war, co-written with Elliot Ackerman. Admiral Stavridis, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the program. As I mentioned before we started to record, your name came up a number of times in the genesis of this series as I would talk to your peers in the four-star community and ask them, would you be interested in talking about geopolitical issues, national security issues in an environment like this? They would all say, sure, I just haven't felt comfortable getting out there like Stavridis. And that happened enough times that I thought it would be fun to bring you on. And just get a sense of why this has been so important to you. After you got out of the service and went to Tufts and now in your current role, you have made it a point to help people understand what's going on, what people in uniform are thinking about through these issues. Why was that so important to you when you got out of the service, Jim?
1: Simple sentence. No one of us is as smart as all of us thinking together, which means the more voices that we have on any given problem, whether we're trying to sequence the human genome, launch a manned mission to Mars, or solve the strategic challenge of China, which I would say is the looming tower of our times, no matter what the challenge is, no one of us, no one person, no one officer, no one company, no one nation, no one alliance, no one of us is as smart as all of us. So. My view is open the mic. Get more people out there talking. People will have good ideas. I'll agree with some. I'll disagree with others. I am unafraid to mix it up. Uh, and that's the, the heart of my answer. Perhaps second point is my personality. I'm Greek American. I'd I love nothing better than to have a zesty conversation with somebody. It goes back to the ancient Greeks who invented the idea of debate. Um, and number three, I've simply always been comfortable in publishing my ideas and speaking publicly. I've, I've written uh, now 10 books, thousands of articles. I was, you know, the kid who was the editor of the high school newspaper. Um, it's part of my life in pattern of operations. So there's three reasons that I say uh, are probably why I'm more inclined to do it than someone like Jim Mattis, who, you know, would never miss a chance to keep his mouth shut. And you know, you can make that argument. Um, frankly, I'd rather hear from Jim Mattis. I'd rather hear from uh, many of my distinguished contemporaries. And I'll close by saying I have heard from them many times privately, but that means that the vast body of the American public are denied the kind of insights um, because. According to your version of events, they just don't want to do it. Well, my view is get out there and share your ideas.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to give the wrong idea. It's not that they don't want to do it. I think it's more a comfort level, Jim. I think it's more the idea that they want to make sure that when they do express their ideas, they're done in a non confrontational way, they're done in a non controversial way, a non partisan way. I think everybody that I've talked to on this series, both on and off the air, has said, we just don't want to seem like we're criticizing the people who are in the room now, who are in the building now, who are in those meetings now. Is that something that you think about or worry about, or is the the marketplace of ideas important enough to you that, that you think is worth getting out there?
1: Yeah, it's not a war of ideas. It's a marketplace of ideas, as you just said, which is a phrase I use constantly. And um, frankly, if you're afraid, that's the word you used, um, to cause people discomfort, um, then maybe, maybe you shouldn't be part of a larger debate. I find it um, surprising that men and women who have risked their lives in combat um, apparently don't feel as though they want to get out and mix it up and there's discomfort. Um, if what you're striving for is the greater good, the better idea, the, um, the, the more energetic thought, um, you have to challenge people. You know, another part of this is simply that if you were lucky enough – and it is luck in many cases – to ascend to four-star rank, the nation's invested in you. It's invested an enormous amount in you over 30 to 40 years. I'd say you owe that voice, that experience back because something you say may spark a reaction that causes a change that makes the nation more secure.
0: I'm going to transcribe that passage and use that as recruiting material for bringing your peers into this conversation over the course of the next weeks, months, years, Jim. I appreciate that very much. You mentioned China. Can I
1: give you one other thought on that? Of course, please. it's, It's perhaps an obvious one. It's simply that I get it. Um, it. It is a very controversial world out there. Uh, people are prepared to jump on you, and if you misspeak, and if you uh, say something that violates someone else's idea of the norm, um, that can get very painful very quickly. And that's unfortunate, but I don't think the answer to that is that we all hunker down. I think the answer to that is, in fact, the opposite, It's that we We get out, we recognize someone's going to disagree with us, but we don't think that's the end of the world if they do.
0: I think that assessment is right on target with the way that um, most of the people that I've talked to have uh, approached their way out of uniform of talking about these ideas. You mentioned China, and China, of course, is uh, one of the peer competitors mentioned in the National Defense Strategy, and people talk about it in the national security community all the time. What's your assessment of how we got to where we are in our relationship with China over the last maybe even 25 to 50 years since Nixon opened China?
1: The the changes are really all about China, and um, China is an ancient civilization. I highly commend Henry Kissinger's exceptional one-volume treatment on China by Henry Kissinger, without question, the leading sinologist in the United States. And I've heard him address this question. And of course, he was present at the creation of the emergence of China alongside Zhao Anlei, uh at the time the premier of China. And Nixon, as you say, if you will, opened China, an enormous moment in Um, contemporary history, but really just a blink in the passage of thousands of years of Chinese civilization. So what you would hear from a, a leader in China would be, well, you know, China's had a couple of bad centuries, but we're moving forward now. And that forward trajectory for them is the most natural thing in the world. Don't forget, the Chinese refer- in their language, to the Middle Kingdom, meaning that China is positioned between the rest of us here on Earth and the heavens above. That is how the Chinese see their place in the world. And they are achieving the capability to move in that direction uh, because of a large population, because of, shall we say, a streamlined system of government that allows top-down guidance um, and as well hearkening back to their history and culture, they firmly believe that by the middle of this century, they will be in a position of real preeminence globally. So what happens? That causes them to collide with the United States, which came out of the Cold War as the preeminent nation globally. This has been called by my good friend, Graham Allison of Harvard, the Thucydides trap, harkening back to 2,500 years ago, the ancient Greeks, Athens and Sparta, rising power confronted, confronting an established power creates a tendency two out of three times in human history to go to war. Um, we can avoid the Thucydides trap, but I'll tell you the jaws of the trap are coming closer and closer together, and that's why I wrote a novel, 2034, a novel of the next world war, as a cautionary tale to say if we don't avoid the Thucydides trap, It will close on us. It has closed more often than not in human history under these circumstances. We can still reverse engineer this thing, but not if we are afraid to imagine how badly it could go.
0: I want to talk about the book later in the conversation because I imagine you started maybe thinking about that book, which just came out. You probably began thinking about it two or three years ago, and 2034 is right in between 2019 and 2050, that mid-century moment that you referred to a a, a little bit ago. What gets us from here to there in the real world, from here to, say, 2034, to avoid that trap?
1: Um, If we want to avoid stumbling into a war with Europe, and by the way, the last time the Thucydides trap closed was just over 100 years ago. Established power, Great Britain, rising power, Kaiser's Germany. How'd that turn out? Well, 20 million dead in Europe, followed inexorably by the Second World War, 80 million dead in the butcher's bill of the 20th century. So this is big casino. We've got to avoid it. The way to do it is to have a plan, a strategic plan to deal with China. It should include military capability to create deterrence and a smart approach to trade and tariffs that measure access to our markets in return for access to their markets, um, among other things. It should include a diplomatic component, building a strong network of allies, partners, and friends who can help us face China. Notably, India, by the way, would be very important in that part of the plan. It would have a tech component to ensure that we continue to move rapidly on artificial intelligence. That's the key race we must run with China. And lastly, it's got to have a a communications component, a strategic communications component that emphasizes our values – democracy, liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, gender equality, racial equality. Look, we execute those values imperfectly, but they are the right values, and we've got to get into that. We were talking a moment ago, marketplace. We've got to get in and compete in that marketplace of ideas, because China's Theory of the case, one belt, one road, is to demonstrate to the world that the best model is capitalism with an authoritarian uh, cap on it. They're gonna move out with that model. Our model can compete, it's messier, it's more aligned with human nature. And if we play our cards right, those two systems can coexist and we don't have to end up in a war, but it will require conscious thought.
0: I'm trying to recruit partners, of, or make our trying to make ourselves the partner of choice is the phrase that Carter Ham used on this program a couple of weeks ago. Is that what you're getting at in, in regards to the way we position ourselves to potential allies and partners compared to China, Jim?
1: I think that's fair. Carter is a, a, a strong thinker. He worked for me in Europe as the uh, commander of U.S. Army Europe when I was uh, commander of U.S. European Command. He's, uh, he's got the right approach, and it's going to require some resources. Um, China is showing up with bags of money in these places. Um, we can talk about our values, but we better have some uh, dollars to back that up. And that, I would say, is part of the economic component. But it crosses over to that strategic one as well. And again, you got to do it smartly. You can't simply say, yeah, we want everybody to, to join with us, that would be great. It's unlikely, you need to identify who are the most important countries, what are the most important regions and pull them consciously toward us. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, I'd put India at the top of the list.
0: All right, Um, India is at the top of the list. Uh, Two countries I think we may have underestimated, at, at least in the national dialogue about our relationship with China, Australia, and New Zealand because of how reliant on China both of those countries are for trade. Is there an opportunity there? We have great relationships with them now, but is there an opportunity there to recruit them to an even closer relationship as far as the way that we deal with China, Jim?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, What is often discussed is the idea of the quad in Asia. There is no NATO in Asia because there's a wide disparity of culture, history, military capability. But the quad is loosely refers to the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. And this entity. The Quad is still quite informal, but I think over time it could grow into uh, a significant geopolitical alignment. Then you sort of add on smaller but important countries, New Zealand, Singapore, Vietnam, a, a rising power in many ways, traditional U.S. allies, Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia. You kind of build a bench but I think you start with the quad and you put your priorities there. Why India would be the right question to ask. And it's because I always say about China, one belt, one road, it's got one big problem, and that's India. India parked geographically right in between China and all the markets it wants to access, all the raw materials it needs. India dominates the Indian Ocean, kind of the last... I don't want to say unexplored, but the last unexploited large maritime space in the world, full of oil, hydrocarbons, fisheries. There's a lot of advantage that accrues to India. And here's the punchline, they're a democracy, a pretty vibrant democracy, by the way, with Western norms kind of built in. They have a lot of corruption, lack of education, lack of infrastructure, they've got a ways to go but they're also a young nation. China's old, growing older. Um, The lights slowly will go out in China in terms of aging in a way that they won't in India because it's such a young nation. So again, in terms of prioritizing allies, partners, and friends, you gotta look at India in a very serious way.
0: NATO, as you well know, better probably than anybody on earth, has been a tremendous success in the years of its existence. The Southeast Asian Treaty Organization formed at about the same time, didn't go anywhere, went nowhere fast. Should the Quad be codified in some way, formalized in some way, or is it fine the way that it is now that its members just bring uh, countries in as they demonstrate a desire to be included and the need to be included?
1: The latter, and uh, you need look no further, and you alluded to the history of these kind of security organizations was actually NATO, CETO, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, as you mentioned, and CENTO. Remember CENTO? Barely. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. And And the reason the other two never got anywhere is because they were too disparate in their value sets, in their geography, their ancient enemies. Whereas Europe, relatively speaking, it's geographically combined. It has a You know, two millennia of shared history. It's it's, above all, its value sets are generally speaking aligned to democracy, liberty, freedom of speech, all the things we talked about. Um, NATO has been, I think, incredibly successful, uh, accomplished its mission. It buried the Soviet Union without a war. What's better than that, Sun Tzu would say. And um, it goes on today, facing challenges like cyber, the Arctic, the Um, ongoing chaos to the south of the alliance in Syria, the Mediterranean. It's a very relevant organization. I don't see the possibility of creating a formal structure like that. What I do see is a loose alignment, military exercises, trade. We ought to resuscitate the idea of the Trans-Pacific Partnership to include the nations we just talked about. And we should have a a uh, diplomatic component to it, where collectively we say to China um, what you're doing to the Uyghurs is unacceptable. What you're doing backpedaling from your legal treaty agreements to treat Hong Kong for at least a 50-year period, you're breaking all those. You're pressuring Taiwan. You're pressuring Vietnam. You're pressuring India and the Himalayas. You're claiming the South China Sea, a vast body of water half the size of the United States, as essentially territorial seas. It's a preposterous claim. They take it very seriously. So we should have military, economic, diplomatic components to the quad, but I think a a formal structure isn't in the cards. All right,
0: 2034, a novel of the next world war. You and Elliot Ackerman have published this book. You laid the groundwork for it, earlier in our conversation i'm sure intentionally very well done admiral before we start to talk about the book you could have done this you could have approached this subject in any number of different ways why did you want to do it as a novel rather than a warning of here are the things that could happen between now and then a a more factual type of thing you've done a lot of those kinds of books why did you decide not to do it that way this time
1: Because I wanted more people to read it. I wanted more people to understand it. I didn't want to write another boring policy book about, hey, we better be careful or we're going to get into war with China. I wanted to write a book that a lot of people would read. It hit number six on the New York Times bestseller list, number nine on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And it's now in its fourth printing. After 90 days, we have signed contracts with 16 different nations around the world to publish it um the message is moving at scale and it's an important message secondly i've always wanted to write a novel never have and Elliot ackerman's written four novels he's a master novelist national book award finalist as well as being a highly decorated combat marine and the two of us teamed up on this and writing fiction is fun you you kind of throw off the straight jacket of fact and you get to splash some paint around the canvas. And third and finally, in a novel, you have characters. This is a book about people, principally about five characters, kind of representing five different national sensibilities, uh, U.S., China, obviously, but also India, uh, Iran, and Russia. And their interactions, um, you, you just can't do that in a work of nonfiction. And that, to me, was by far the most enjoyable part. And I think that's why humans resonate to stories, because they're about other people, generally speaking.
0: So take me through the 2020s and into the early 2030s in this book, in the, in the world that exists in this book, and bridge events as we know them today with events as the way that they play out, at least toward the beginning of this book, Jim.
1: Well, many of my contemporaries will tell you, yes, Stavridis wrote a really great book, but he got one big thing wrong, and it is the date. Many of my contemporaries, both active duty and retired, will tell you, we're going to be in a war with China way before 2034. And I think there's some concern that's legitimate about that. However, the way we postulate it in the book, and this is all backstory, the book begins in 2034 in the South China Sea on a freedom of navigation patrol where a Commodore, Sarah Hunt, has three destroyers shot out from under her. By the end of the first 30 pages, all three of her Arleigh Burke destroyers are at the bottom of the South China Sea. The backstory that emerges is that over the preceding years, our civil discourse inside the United States has caused us to move away from our alliances, our partnerships. In 2034, the U.S. does not have a single ally, not one. NATO doesn't appear, Japan doesn't appear, Australia doesn't appear. It's because we have mishandled our relationships in the world for uh, that period of time. Secondly, China has outstripped us in artificial intelligence, machine learning, space. They have achieved the ability to blind the elephant, so to speak, to knock out our ability to surveil, for example, broad ocean areas. Um, They have achieved the ability to intercede broadly in our cyber networks in a way they, they could not today, but I fear they will be able to in the 10 to 15 year future. So those are the two principal backstories and by the way the president of the united states in the novel is a woman which shouldn't surprise us i'd be frankly more surprised if we haven't had a woman president by 15 years from now but in the book she's not a democrat or a republican and that's because i think both political parties are in some danger of not being relevant in the 10 to 15 year point point. and you know we act like somewhere in the constitution you know article xx it says, and there shall be two political parties. One shall be called Republican, the other shall be called Democrat. That's not in the Constitution. We never started this nation with either Republicans or Democrats. We started with Whigs, Federalists, Nationalists, bunch of other parties. Eventually, we did get Democrats and then Republicans. I think the chances are 50-50 that these political parties will survive to mid-century. We'll see. In any event, the backstory that leads up is simply that the United States has taken its eye off the ball militarily, domestically, internationally, and we pay a significant price. I I hasten to say, by the way, the book is not apocalyptic. The world doesn't end. There's not a massive strategic exchange. This is not like Neville Shoot on the beach where literally everybody dies. This is not that book, but it is very much a cautionary tale of what could happen if we don't have a plan with China, if we don't tend the garden of allies, partners, and friends, if we don't maintain military capability – the consequences could be significant and deleterious to our nation.
0: You used a word stumbled earlier in our conversation that Nordy Schwartz used on this program a couple of weeks ago when talking about what he's concerned about, and 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 your other peers in the series have alluded to the same thing, and that is that the next conflict starts by accident rather than on purpose, sure. whether it's our side or the other side, whoever the other side happens to be. Is that the landscape in 2034 that you foresee that that the next world war happens accidentally or starts at least accidentally?
1: It starts with a miscalculation in 2034. And that's, in my view, entirely realistic. Again, wind the clock back to the last time that Thucydides' trap snapped shut on the world was August of 1914. Go back and read the guns of august by barbara tuckman and here you had this constellation of european nations all their economies completely intertwined the royal families all related by blood the kaiser was the grandson of queen victoria yet an assassin's bullet in a small obscure corner of the austro hungarian empire in a place called sarajevo what is today bosnia herzegovina that bullet starts a conflagration 20 million people killed in that war and again you can drop a plumb line to the second world war total 80 million dead coming out of an assassin's bullet now there's lots of other reasons that go into this i get that believe me Uh, but think of it this way it's a tinder pile in 1914 the assassin's bullet is what sets it off that could happen quite easily 2034, maybe a bit sooner. Uh, Some people say to me, "Ah, you should have said it with uh, Taiwan. It's a reasonable place to start. I I think the South China Sea is more concerning because only in the South China Sea are U.S. and Chinese warships and combat aircraft in constant contact in a disputed territorial space. That's a big pile of tinder. And the young people that are out there flying those jets are in their 20s, early 30s. People in command of those ships. I commanded an Arleigh Burke destroyer when I was 36 years old. These are young, and I was the old guy on the ship. These are are young, dynamic leaders and sailors and, and airmen and airwomen who want to do the right thing, but they're young, they're inexperienced, um, it's a big pile of tinder we do to worry about it
0: when you lay it out that way admiral it sounds almost inevitable that something will happen no. between now and 2034 and i know that's not what you're trying to portray but it, it does sound like a very daunting prospect for all of those things to go right all of those days between now and then
1: indeed and and let's um stipulate that we are not in august 1914 as follows we have instantaneous communications we have uh, the ability to stream vast amounts of data we can communicate instantaneously in ways that were marginally available telegraph but to move messages bureaucracies we're we're I think, in a better place today, and also let's recognize that we have the history. We can look back to 1914 and see what a miscalculation can do. And now we have a novel that you can read and worry about and think about. So I think that's a good place to wrap up. It kind of uh, ends us with uh, a cautionary tale, but I'm also cautiously optimistic that we can avoid this Thucydides trap as I've said earlier, it's going to require conscious thought and
0: effort. Yeah, we do have to end there, Admiral, because the longer you talk, the more questions I write down. I'm very grateful for your time, and uh, congratulations on the book, and thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it, sir.
1: Francis, thank you very much, and I appreciate your effort to engage more senior leaders in open conversations. In my view, it can only help.
0: Next week, General David Goldfein, U.S. Air Force, retired, is my guest. He's the former chief of staff of the Air Force. You can subscribe to get Four Star Forum every week. The program is available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your shows. If you like Four Star Forum, please leave the best review possible on whatever app you use to listen to it. High rankings in the apps help other people find the program until next week i'm the host of four star forum francis rose thanks very much for listening